listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program, and in the hour ahead, the growing scourge in North America and around the world. It's moving this way, folks. Alligators? That's right. Alligators. We have more alligator news for you this hour as the meth gator problem now moving even further north again to Chicago. We will take you there. But we begin this hour with the realization that what is happening south of the border with the mass carnage that we saw over the past couple of days, that this is no time to feel superior in this country and in this city. Simply because we have gunplay of our own. Obviously, we are talking about different things and not assault rifles, and but at the same time, reason for worry, especially after five people were injured in a packed nightclub early Monday. Police saying one man is in life-threatening condition. Four other victims have non-life-threatening injuries. Mark Saunders... The police chief holding a rare news conference on the holiday Monday to talk about this says no suspects have been identified in this nightclub shooting, but he says that this case is quote-unquote solvable. Now, the chief holding a press conference on the holiday, he's perhaps not entirely concerned about communicating with you, the public, and trying to get the news out about these particular events. But the chief also perhaps has another audience in mind. Chief Saunders' five-year contract as chief of Toronto is set to expire in April of 2020. And the Toronto Police Services Board is going to decide over the next couple of months whether or not to renew that contract or launch a search for a new leader. Bill Blair is the only Toronto police chief in recent memory to have had his contract renewed for a second five-year term. Now, on this program in the past, I have been somewhat critical of Chief Saunders' communication style and how he speaks and how he delivers his news to the public. My contention is that as Chief of Police, your job is twofold. You are an administrator and you are a communicator, a communicator not only to the frontline forces, the police officers, on the force, but also to the city at large about what is going on in terms of public safety. And with all of that in mind, I want to play some of the Chief's remarks from Monday. Let's begin with Saunders here, trying in his own way to ease fears. These incidents over the past couple of days in Toronto, after all, are not mass shootings like in the United States. So what do you make of this from the chief on Monday talking about fear? Well, I'll I'll be fair and say most of the shootings are are occurring at nighttime. And um, a a lot of the uh, uh, places and and some of the people um, that uh, um, have been shot um, aren't necessarily... uh, nine to five, <laughs> wife and kids, home, uh, you know, if, if, if you're kind of uh, uh, in, in that stratosphere, then, then the odds of anything happening to you are, are, are very, very slim in this city. Um, but uh, when someone's shooting with, with 100 plus people in a club, uh, that's not a good day for us. And, and, and that's a person I, I certainly am very ambitious to working with the community, working with the city to, to solve that one. All right. That's not a good day for us, granted. 
and all the Volvo driving soccer moms can relax, that everything is just fine. That is essentially what the chief is saying there. I'll let that hang there. Here the chief talks about security in that nightclub in particular, and then transitions into warm and fuzzies. Well, we've got an opportunity to review the DVR. There was a DVR in there. Might not solve it, but it will certainly help us, I believe, because there was some activity going on in the, in the, the bar. I can't speak to how, how private sector folks run their things, I, but I, I can tell you as a, as a citizen, I can walk into a bar and look at it and say, I'm not staying here tonight. This is not going to be my place. Uh, but having said that, people can go to wherever they want to go to. I would just, I would exercise caution if, if you're walking into a spot and it doesn't feel as, as warm and fuzzy as, as you would like it to, or, or your friends or your, or your family. Makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. Warm and fuzzy? Now, do you feel less safe? Do you feel safer? Does Saunders' message to nine to fivers resonate with you? Can you spot an establishment where you shouldn't be within minutes of entering? From that question to a broader one about where you are willing to go, where you are willing to travel and vacation. With the carnage south of the border this weekend, would you reconsider spending time in the United States? Two South American governments have now issued warnings against travel to the U.S. following those two mass shootings over the weekend, both Venezuela and Uruguay issuing statements on Monday. The Venezuelan government suggesting citizens should, quote, postpone travel, take precautions, given the acts of violence and crimes of indiscriminate hatred. Then goes on to say that these growing acts of violence have found, quote, echo and sustenance from the supremacist elite who hold power in Washington. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on there. The United States, for example, has just frozen all Venezuelan assets in America. That is Venezuela after all. But you may ask yourself, what does the Canadian government webpage on travel to the United States say? Well, here's the quote. Within large metropolitan areas, violent crime more commonly occurs in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, particularly from dusk to dawn. Then it goes on to say, incidents of mass shootings occur, but account for a small percentage of homicide deaths in the country. The likelihood of a tourist being a victim of such an incident is low. That is from the Canadian government travel page about going to the United States. And now, perhaps, is no time for context. It is not time to talk about that sort of thing. That is what Neil deGrasse Tyson learned after that tweet this weekend. Did you see that? He tweeted out this. In the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically has lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, and 40 to homicide via handgun. Often, our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. Well, Tyson then going on to Facebook saying that he miscalculated how that would be perceived. He genuinely believed it would be helpful. Obviously, he was roasted for being insensitive, tone-deaf. In this from the New York Times, aside from the tweet's tone, the accuracy of the statistics is unclear. He didn't provide a source or time period. Nevertheless, 
There are times when people want to hear things, and there are times when they simply do not. And meanwhile, on Twitter, the Twitter machine went down a ridiculous rabbit hole that says so much about the state of communication and dialogue over this. It started Sunday after a tweet from American musician Jason Isbell. And basically, Isbell tweeted out, if, if you need to know what an assault rifle is, then you don't know what's going on. Basically, that's what it said. And in response, William McNabb, a self-described libertarian from Arkansas, responded with this, legit question for rural Americans. How do I kill 30 to 50 feral hogs that run into my yard within three to five minutes while my small kids play? Well, that just lit up Twitter. Everybody's got a joke about that. It may sound surreal to you, but maybe that's because you don't live in the rural American South. According to the Guardian newspaper, it's actually, quote, a huge problem. And then this from the CBC in July. As wild pigs spread, Ontario braces for an ecological train wreck. Wild pigs are an ecological train wreck, says a Ph.D. student at the University of Saskatchewan, and they're coming to Ontario. There. Don't you feel better now? Thank you, social media, for reducing real human tragedy to a meme that can be commented on, liked, joked about, and then forgotten. You know what? I don't have a warm fuzzy about all of this. Makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. Coming up after the break, John Iveson is here to talk about his new book, Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister, plus calls from you on whether you believe really can Trudeau be defeated in the upcoming federal election. We like to keep our eye on all these situations, all of the threats facing this world, and I believe one of the greatest ones right now. Alligators? That's right. Meth gators. This news from Chicago, the Chicago Times now, Chicago Sun-Times, reporting that officers serving a search warrant at a northeast side house found a three-foot alligator along with guns and drugs. Meth gators, people! Alligators? That's right. This discovery comes after about a month after an alligator was found swimming in a city park lagoon that captured the attention of the city. That alligator, dubbed Chance the Snapper, was captured by a gator hunter who was then flown down to Florida. The gator, not the hunter. After a couple of weeks, and a couple of weeks ago, did you know this? Two brothers posted a Facebook video in which they claimed to have found another alligator in that lagoon, although police suspect they put the gator in the lagoon themselves, possibly on meth. Just saying. Turning our eyes to federal politics now, Canadians are becoming increasingly skeptical about their prime minister, especially in the advance of the upcoming federal election. And I want to read from you a portion of a new book from John Iveson, who is a writer and columnist with Post Media, Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister. And in the introduction... John writes that Canadians are modest people, not accustomed to their leaders having such lofty aspirations as trying to eliminate poverty, perhaps. 
In the past, they have voted for prime ministers like Jean Chrétien, who are more interested in staying in power, leaders who believe that good government is boring government. In the country's largest province, Ontario, Bill Davis won four elections in a row following his own advice, bland works. John Iveson joins me on the line now. Hi, John. Hey, Alan. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. I'm, I don't know whether I can manage uh, equal mess gators, but um, <laughs> hopefully there's something here. For... <laughs> sure. Well, sure. It's snappy. Still snappy. Yeah, I hope. I hope. Uh, I, I just I, I just want to talk quickly about the cover because I was gra- I just when I looked at it I lo- it's just a single shot of Justin Trudeau and he's got his head on his hands and immediately I'm I, I'm put in mind of his dad doing the pirouette was that un- intentional? Well, I, I don't know the thinking behind the guy who came up with the picture, but I think it was designed to suggest that all was not going well. Uh, if he, he's he's running his hands through his hair, yes. you know, there are, good, nice, nice go hair though. With this government, it's nice it, hair. It is nice. It is nice hair. What else could go wrong with this government? And whether this was during SNC or or whatever, I don't know. But but he's he's had plenty of opportunities to run his hands through his hair in the last four years. Coming up, we're going to take some of your calls after we talk to John uh, on the Alan Carter Radio Program four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred star six forty on your cell about the reality of whether or not Justin Trudeau actually is beatable in the fall election. John, it's your contention that Canadians have soured more quickly on this leader than perhaps any other federal leader. Yeah, well, I think that in October, um, you know, Trudeau is not up against perfection. He's up against Andrew Scheer, Elizabeth May, and Jagmeet Singh. So, you know, if he's lost his audience or lost some of his audience, he has time to gain it back again. But at the same time, I do think that there's an enthusiasm gap compared to 2015. I mean, the polls suggest that. He's now polling beneath, below his party for, for the first time in four years. There have been a litany of broken promises, a lot of unforced errors. You know, when you start to reel them off from Omar Khadr to the Aga Khan to, you know, m- modest deficits to the 2015 election being the last uh, under first-past-the-post system... There's a lot of accumulated problems there, and uh, and I think that the, you know Canadians are going to be reminded about these, these errors and promises by the opposition parties, and Justin Trudeau is going to have to lay out another good reason why people should stick with him. When Trudeau first came on the scene, the knock against him for the first while, even before he was Liberal leader, but then when he took over the leadership was that he was essentially just an empty shirt. Good-looking guy, not a lot going on in there. Uh, that transitioned, I think that that transitioned obviously in 2015, and he was able to you know, gather or, or garner the uh, attention of not only this country but the world. But it seems like we have boomeranged somewhat back to that, John. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, the kind of lightweight image, uh, he got through that in the election, and I think for the first couple of years... He displayed a, a kind of discipline and conviction that that surprised many people. Um, you know, the the first couple of years were, I wouldn't say easy. I don't think governing Canada is ever easy, but but it was low hanging fruit a lot of the time. It was it was things that the the federal government could do on its own without negotiating with the provinces. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the, bringing in the Canada Child Benefit, for example. There were some successful policies, and and the, the economy was relatively benign. And he didn't really have a lot of foreign policy uh, 
explosions popping up that he had to deal with. So, you know, I think he surprised a lot of people by the, the way that he smoothly transitioned into the role of prime minister. Some people might say that was because he's an actor and this was basically him acting as a as a prime minister. But clearly when, when you know, Donald Trump came on the scene, for example, um, the NDP Green Coalition was elected in British Columbia, a whole bunch of things started to go wrong. And, you know, Paul, being a prime minister, it's it's a bit like sailing. You, you've got to go with, know when to go with the wind, when to tack. Uh, I think that that experience, that lack of experience was shown up in the latter part of the mandate, where where he just didn't have the experience of a Cretchen or a Harper, and he was kind of exposed. And then, I've made this contention before, that SNC-Lavalin, and we just noticed this last week, I mean, I think it was the Wall Street Journal uh, filed an enormous long think piece about SNC-Lavalin and the impact that has on on Trudeau and, and all of his bona fides as being a feminist and progressive and all the rest of that. And and my contention is that that's hard for Canadians to understand, but what is not hard for Canadians to understand and what just gets us in the gut is any sense of us being an international embarrassment. And that's where I come to your portion of your book about what happened in India. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I think the sense was that while it's his prerogative, he wants if he wants to embarrass himself. It's when he embarrasses the country, there is a sense that um, that that's beyond the pale. And and I think people did feel that that in India the, the country was was embarrassed. Um, you know, on SNC, I think that there, there was a sense that he, you know he he promised that he would be better. I mean, he, he, I don't think he behaved particularly any differently than Cretchen or Martin or or Harper would have done, but the. The problem was he promised he would be better than them and that he would be open in his government and that he wouldn't just fire a minister who didn't agree with him. You know what I'm reminded of, and I wonder if you see any parallels here, is I'm reminded of Wynne in in Sudbury and the the sort of promise that Kathleen Wynne made when she won her majority was she would be different, not dissimilar to Justin Trudeau. And then we get the tapes, uh, the recordings, and a peek behind the scene of what really went on in terms of her muscling aside a candidate she didn't want, putting somebody in she did. And I think that broke faith for the electorate who just ever after that saw her as self-interested and doing politics the same way it has always been done. Do you see those parallels? I, I do. I think that they, you know, the promise of doing politics differently is fraught because you know, in many ways politics has been done the same way forever and ever for good reason. Um, you know, at some point uh, prime ministers and premiers want to have their candidate, the, the people who agree with them. And uh, you know, that the, old, the old yes minister phrase about open government, you can either be open or you can have government. I mean, it, there, are, there are good reasons that, you know, most of these decisions are made behind closed doors and, and it's a little bit messy. Um, governing is messy and it's the art of the possible. And in Canada, often not much is possible. So when you say that you're going to completely, you know, overturn the immutable laws of politics and even economics, then... You know, it's no great surprise when four years later it turns out that you're, you didn't live up to your word. I want to just pivot to what I talked about uh, at the beginning here was the the real-world calculations that are coming in the fall. And you pointed out that, you know, that Justin Trudeau isn't running against himself, although I think in some ways he is. 
The question is going to be, and I, I posed this last week, where is the progressive vote going to go? If Jugmeet Singh, who seems to just be entirely invisible, doesn't get up off the mat in a big hurry, do you think that the the progressive vote will go anywhere else other than liberal? It, can it really go that solidly green? I think it'll go liberal. I, I think that in pockets there will be a green vote. You might see a, a green MP in Guelph, for example. Certainly we'll see more green MPs on Vancouver Island, for example. But I don't see a mass defection, and I think that... You know, that that idea of scaring the dippers, um, even scaring potential green voters in the last days of a campaign, it's, it's tried and tested, and I think it will work this time because there's no great loyalty to the to the NDP leader. Um, you know, the, the, the drive to uh, woo left-of-centre voters has been pretty relentless in the last four years. Sure, there are some that are upset about the electoral reform, U-turn. There will be some that are upset about pipelines, but by and large, this Liberal government has got a good tale to tell left of centre voters. The, the unanswered question to me is, is: is turnout? I mean, if there is an enthusiasm gap, will a lot of those people vote? The other thing is that the, the, in the course of doing this book, I talked to a lot of Liberal MPs who are worried about the centrist vote. I mean, people who meet in the past have voted Conservative when it was a more progressive Conservative party, who flipped Liberal this time. Those voters, I think, are, are a bigger question mark because in many ways they, they've been abandoned by this government. A lot of the things that they would like to have seen happen, like balanced budgets, are certainly deficits that were not as, as whopping as they've been, and certainly a, an end in sight to those deficits. I think that there, there are a lot of progressive conservative slash conservative liberal voters who will be, you know, maybe right up until election days think, thinking about who they're going to vote for. John Iveson, author, political columnist for the National Post. His new book is out now called Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister. John, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Great. Thanks, Alan. All the best. Welcome back to the program. A lot of people listen to this program in their cars, but some people actually do take transit. And I have a couple of transit stories here for you. Let's begin in Springfield, where a bus company that employs a driver who has been charged with intentionally locking a passenger in the vehicle's luggage compartment has now come to the driver's defense. The head of safety and security at this Springfield-based Peter Pan bus lines says the driver is an exemplary employee, received many customer commendations, and does not think that she intentionally locked a 32-year-old Long Beach, New York woman in the luggage area. Didn't mean it! Police in Massachusetts say a man punched a bus driver who would not let let him off, and that triggered a crash that injured 16 people. Authorities say a 24-year-old man assaulted the driver, and that caused the bus to rear-end a car and hit a utility pole. Obviously, the wrong passenger was locked in the luggage area. Real Estate News. Here are the latest numbers from the Toronto Real Estate uh, Board on home prices. If you follow this kind of thing, 
The average home in the GTA cost over just $800,000 in July, up 3.2% from the same month in 2018. That's an average home going up 3.2% year over year. Detached homes, and this is interesting, coming down slightly in price to $995. That's because nobody can afford that kind of thing. Semi-detached homes, $787,000. That's up 5.3% year to year. Townhomes, 660000 That's up 4.3% over last July. And condos continue to increase in price at the highest rate, climbing 6.7% to $584,000 on average. There's your real estate news. When you go to the doctor and you get a prescription... Do you trust that the doctor knows what that is that they're prescribing? Do you trust that the doctor has not been unduly influenced by Big Pharma? Well, Laura Hensley is a Global News National online journalist and has been looking into this in her series on drugs and doctors in this country, and she joins me in studio. Hi, Laura. Hi, Alan. So what did you find about influence from Big Pharma on doctors? So I found that Pharmaceutical companies invest millions of dollars and they really, really, really want drug reps to interact with doctors and their goal is to affect the drugs that they prescribe. So all these drug reps, you know, they have a very specific job. They go to a doctor, they pitch a product, and they need to convince that doctor that their product is superior and affect their prescribing habits. What kind of laws do we have governing that? They can't just take them out and wine and dine them, right? No. So regulations have changed in recent years. So yeah, you can't take a doctor to a Raptors game anymore. You can't take them to a concert, but you can buy them a meal. And so even though these small interactions like a meal or a coffee or an appointment, they seem innocent and harmless, research does show that these interactions do influence prescribing habits. And when a doctor receives even a $20 lunch, they're more likely to prescribe that brand's drug. Even a something as simple as a pen apparently has influence. Yes, it's it's so interesting because I think a lot of people assume doctors are not able to be influenced, but they're humans like all of us. And drug reps really have an ability to create a relationship and they want to form a relationship that feels like a friendship. And when you have something that feels like that, you're trusting, you want to do someone a favor, and you forget that you're actually being sold something. And this is so concerning when we look at the opioid crisis and how much Uh, opioid medication has been prescribed for pain right across the board. Certainly. I mean, you know, in 2018, 3.7 million Canadians were prescribed an opioid pain medication. And there's lawsuits going on in Canada and the U.S. against opioid manufacturers saying that they deliberately used drug reps and they lied to doctors about the safety of these products. So the opioid crisis is a really big recent example of how influential these pharma companies are. And Is portion of it also a lack of education on the part of doctors? That's a good question. So, you know, the drug reps I spoke to, their argument was, you know, doctors do not take the time themselves to educate about new products. So it's our job to go meet with them, to talk to them. But experts are saying that's simply not true. A doctor, if they are a good doctor, they do take the time to learn about new medications. And if they're having any questions, they should look at a third party, like a pharmacist who's unbiased, who can give them more objective information than relying solely on a pharmaceutical rep to give them that. You know, in the coverage that I've done on the opioid crisis, what I hear continually from doctors is that, you know, that patients come in and they demand, they demand something to deal with the pain. And we just do not have in our arsenal much that deals with pain that doesn't have an element of opium in it. Definitely. And that's a huge issue. You know, 
looking at this terrible epidemic and talking to pain experts, a lot of them say drugs are easy to prescribe. And this drug coverage in Canada covers these prescriptions. But when it comes to managing pain, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is one way, rehabilitation is another, but those aren't always covered by insurance plans. So drugs are. And so that's sort of become like the go-to. And I think that's a larger issue, but I think the crisis has magnified the problem that so many Canadians are in pain and doctors aren't necessarily knowing how to deal with it. I mean, I just know even from my own local health clinic and I got a new doctor and he seems like a very nice guy, but he is run off his feet. And when I go in there to have discussions about, you know, pharmaceuticals, I often have done more research and feel that I am more informed about the particular drugs that I'm asking about. And then he'll be like, oh yeah, really? What that kind? Oh yeah, well, okay, what's it do? All right, I'll write that down for you. And I, I don't think that that is an experience that's uncommon in this country. No, certainly not. And it's worrisome, obviously, because if you go to a doctor and you're coming in with more knowledge about a product than they have, that's definitely something to be concerned about. And I think that's a larger issue. I mean, this healthcare in Canada is such a broad topic and there's so many layers of issues, you know, whether it's timing, the resources doctors have, the accessibility problems. But I do think that, you know, as a patient, learning as much as you can and advocating for yourself is really important. Laura Hensley is a Global News National Online journalist, and you can read her work on globalnews.ca. Karen Lieberman has also filed a TV story on this. You can watch that online as well. Laura, always great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. have news about Aretha Franklin. A judge is expected to consider a request for a handwriting expert to examine wills that were discovered in the couch cushions after she died. A hearing is scheduled Tuesday in just north of Detroit. It was a handwritten document found in 2014 that apparently wanted her son to serve as representative of her estate, which would be worth millions. And again, the will was found inside a couch cushion. Odd place to keep your will. I'm just going to say that. And we continue to keep our eye on the situation, the, the very worrisome situation. Alligators? That's right. I have more alligator news. In Florida, a resident wasted no time when he realized his Labrador retriever had fallen into a canal behind his house. The homeowner heard the commotion. He jumped into the canal, managed to pry open the alligator's mouth, got the dog, got out safely. Alligators? That's right. Alligators. Let's talk about rats. From alligators to rats, nothing to worry about with the rats, unless maybe there is. In British Columbia, in Vancouver... They're trapping rats. Why? Leslie Young is Global News National Journalist and is here to talk about it. Hi, Leslie. Hi, thanks for having me. I guess they're not just trapping them because they're vermin and they're trying to exterminate them. Something else is up. Yeah, so they're actually trying to learn more about rats. So what they're doing is they trap the rats and then analyze them to see what kind of diseases they might be carrying and also how they migrate around the city. 
All right. So are they tourists? They what, do they go down to Gastown, check out the steam clock? What is what is that? So, well, the the researchers basically go down to the downtown east side, and they've been doing this for a number of years now. They trap the rats. Uh, they, in some cases, give them a little ear tag and see where they're going. Wait, 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 wait. They let them yeah. go? They, 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 they let, let the rats go again? <laughs> so some they trapped and kept, you know, uh, to, to do actually a little forensic analysis on them, uh, dissect the rats. Other ones they let go, you know, the same way as you might uh, tag a caribou, let's say, to see where it's going around Canada. They tagged these rats to see where they're moving around the city. I'm okay. Caribou, rats. All right. So what, what are they hoping to find out other than rats or vermin? Well, what they're hoping to learn is how rats affect human health. So, you know, we've all heard, of course, of the Black Deaths and, and other plagues that were carried by rats. Now, the, these still exist, but they're obviously not as common right now as they used to be. But, uh, the, you know, people still share their environment with rats, and they do carry a bunch of pretty nasty bugs. So they want to learn more about uh, what these rats could be doing to human health. Sure. Um now, is this just happening in Vancouver? Is it? I, I you know, I lived in Vancouver. I, I remember being down to the waterfront. Anywhere you see that kind of waterfront, you're going to see rats. Um, and so, rats were a problem. Do we, do we think that's the same kind of issue in other parts of the country? Is, is there something similar here? I would say so. I mean, there's there's really only at this point this one research project in Canada in Vancouver. Although I think the University of Guelph is starting one up. One of the researchers was telling me. Uh, but there are similar projects in New York, in New Orleans, in various parts of the U.S. So, you know, I mean, rats are everywhere. So it, uh, I imagine researchers would be, would be interested to know how they're affecting us all over the place. Uh, what are the odds of uh, the return of the Black Plague what, on a scale of 1 to 10? <laughs> I'm going to say probably pretty low at this point. I mean, I, it hasn't disappeared, I, I will say that. Uh, but... It's not like it's, uh, you know, destroying half of Europe's population or anything nowadays. So, Alan, Alan, please stop crying. Yeah, that, that is better. All right. Leslie Young, uh, Global News National Journalist. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. And you can read Leslie's work on globalnews.ca. Thanks. Makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. Doesn't that make you feel good? No black plague. In Florida, a Florida boy who called 911 to report that he was hungry and wanted a pizza got a lesson in proper emergency call etiquette, and he also got a pie. The Sanford Police Department said in a Facebook post that the hungry grade schooler called 911 on Friday. Three officers responded to the home. They checked in on the kids. They met the boy, his older sister. The older sister said, we're fine. And my brother's a jerk. I don't know if she said that. She probably said that. And that her brother had used the phone without her knowledge. Now the officers explained to them, 911 is only for emergencies. And then they went to Pizza Hut and brought a large pizza back to the house. The 5 are here and they brought a wheel. That's nice when the police come and they bring pizza. Makes you feel all warm and... 